0: Let us pray. Father God, as this passage ends, we hear that reminder, we need to be hearers of the Word. And yet to do that, we need the power of your Holy Spirit. And so pour out your Spirit upon this place. Bless us in the hearing of your Word. Give us the good confidence to stand upon the solid ground of your Word this morning. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Growing up in San Diego, you could... Often tell who the tourists were, and we always called the tourists zoners. as reference to people who come from Arizona. Not that only Arizona visited San Diego, but we called them zoners. You can often figure out who the tourists were based on how fearful they were of a couple musical notes. I speak none other of none other notes than these notes. <laughs> there are still people today in this world, that popular movie, Jaws, who will not venture into the ocean because of that warning, that ominous tone. I almost wondered, at did they suspect that the lifeguards of San Diego might put over their bullhorns that song if they saw a shark? They were worried about the danger. In one sense, as I the more and more I kind of looked at this passage and study, this chapter is really, in one sense, Paul's version of that dangerous warning to Timothy. His version of the... And the dangers that this passage talk about are these. It's kind of a summary of them. First, in the first really five verses... We see the danger of being misled by things that are clearly unbiblical. The next, really verses 6 and 7 talk about this. The danger of following silly myths. And then the danger, finally, of the remaining verses. Of allowing ourselves to live disobedient and ungodly lives. These are the warnings that Paul will give us. Our little own melody that we need to be mindful of. And while I don't believe that this list is necessarily an exhaustive list of how churches go wrong, of what we have to, the fin that we have to be looking out for within our churches, it is a helpful list to understand. And so let's begin looking at this list. As Paul opens up this chapter, he states, quite matter-of-factly, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. And we've covered a lot of kind of this language lately as we looked in books like Revelation. There's this kind of dual reality to latter days of how the New Testament talks about the latter days. In one sense everything after the resurrection of christ so even the time of the apostles sometimes they reference that as the latter days and also it can be a reference to well later days latter days and i think the most helpful way and the way i've kind of tried to encourage you guys to look at verses like this is that often with prophecy there are multiple fulfillments and so Uh, I'm not going to dive too much into that idea, because we've covered that several times recently. But I think that's at heart here. So no doubt this was a warning to Timothy, and yet it's still a warning that applies to us today, being people of latter days. And notice how this warning to Timothy begins by Paul. It's a warning about false teachers who depart from the faith. Where does that mean that false teachers are first found? They're first found then within the church. Think about it. A Muslim imam from Lansdale isn't likely to be a threat to old Goshenhoppen and Reformed Church. I don't, while technically there's probably a possibility, I don't really think there's a likelihood that by, unless by force and compulsion, that old Goshenhoppen is going to become like a Muslim mosque. Note, the real threat comes, according to the word of God, when someone from within the church decouples themselves from scripture, separates themselves from the truth of the word, and starts teaching a bunch of garbage that is biblically untrue. So Paul is saying to Timothy, the most clear threat to the church is not found in paganism, it's not found in other religions, it's not even found in other political movements. No, the real threat to the church are individuals who for a little while appear to be a part of the church and yet end up devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and demonic teachings who have an insincerity to them that sears their consciences. And the image here um, is a pretty profound one when he's talking about their consciences being seared. The imagery here is slaver language. So in the Roman world you were not necessarily branded right away as a slave but if you ever tried to run away from your slave master and slavery did look a little different than it looked in American times but if you ever tried to run away from your slave master well then this is what would happen. They'd get the branding iron And they put it right on your forehead. Put it into heat and scald your forehead. So that for the rest of your life, when people would look at you, they knew who you worked for. They knew who you were enslaved by. And Paul's imagery in this is basically that these false teachers will come from the church, appear to be a part of the church, and yet their teaching will show who they are actually enslaved by. And really, the answer to who they're enslaved by is their father, the devil. I turned the page too quickly. So, So Paul offers this as a warning sign, basically. And yet, how does this happen? It's rather simple, really. Actually, Paul hints at this within this very passage. It's not that these people are easily f- are fooled about the complexities of the word of God or the basic standards that God upholds as good. It's not the clarity of scripture that's the problem. They actually know the clear teachings of scripture and yet they hate the standard of scripture move themselves to live and have their being and so they leave it. They forsake it. They no longer want to teach it. And they go off on their merry way, becoming their own gods. And so this passage begins cautioning us, the believer, don't fool yourself. Don't be fooled by such false teachers that do arise within the church. That know better, but they don't care. You need to care about the abiding truth of God's word. Do not follow them, or you too will also be branded for judgment. These individuals would rather be swallowed up by the great white shark of promoting godless wickedness rather than to rest in the still waters of Christ's grace and truth. Flee from such worldly teaching, Paul is warning. And then Paul offers some principled warning signs within the church for them to be mindful of often the types of things, the types of qualities that they start to focus on. And again, I don't believe Paul is giving us an exhaustive list here, but it's still a helpful list. And basically, these qualities are the fin that rises above the surface within the true church. The warning signs of danger below the surface. And what are some of the warning signs? Paul begins with those who forbid marriage and require abstinence for foods, from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now, a few things. First, who is this letter written to at this moment? To a pastor? Or if we were within another denomination recognized within Christendom, they might prefer to call him either a priest or a bishop named Timothy. Actually, the whole tone of this chapter, while it carries with it personal application for us all, is just Paul really just speaking heartfeltly To this pastor individually. And at the root. Of this personal letter. Written to a pastor of a church. Is the first warning. Paul is giving Timothy. Of those who go astray from the truth. And he tells the pastor this. There are going to be those. Who suggest you can't marry. I remember I once had a. uh, Roman Catholic individual I love. We had. They had been busy. Saying how they thought i was a smart individual but how could i be so stupid as to leave the roman catholic church and so i just heard him hearing this so i had to call up the individual and we decided to just have an email exchange a polite email exchange i would he would i would take a chapter of scripture this person i've already heed him so he would take a chapter of scripture and one by one we just worked through the book And he was very confident because, of course, his denomination told him he should be confident that the New Testament would testify of the truthfulness of his Roman Catholic denomination. And so I decided, he allowed me to have the opening salvo, and I put this chapter there. And I said, who's the particular, obviously this is going to be fulfilled in the latter days, is there a particular Protestant group? or Protestant denomination you can think of that fulfills this prophecy. And our exchange ended there. We never went into another chapter. He never gave me an answer. And the reality is that it only took one chapter. Because this chapter clearly warns against much of what is common practice in several denominations, but what is technically the largest denomination in Christendom. That throughout Christian history, groups like Gnostics, groups like the ascetics, and even denominations in our own day, have loved to get carried away with simple things and good things, making them bad things and giving new regulations upon them. Jesus never went to the cross so that Christians, including pastors like Timothy, would have to avoid marriage if they wanted to marry It's a terrible idea. What God calls in the opening chapter of Scripture very good... ...before sin ever entered into the world, biblical marriage... ...how could the cross of Christ all of a sudden make biblical marriage a bad thing? Not to mention, another problem within groups within the Christian church... ...teaching abstinence from marriage is, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians... ...that for some people, they really should marry. Because they have a strong desire to have a consummated love... And, and, and it is not good for that love to be forcibly restrained. Marriage can actually help sanctify those passions of the flesh in ways that they would otherwise not be so sanctified. And so, while at first, marriage and food regulations, when Paul brings them up as things to consider, might seem minor, just look at how the devil has made inroads into defaming the Christian witness in the world within certain denominations in the public square, and by the way, we Protestants are are guilty of these problems too, but the devil is always like a shark under the water looking for an opportunity to devour. And there has been unique and amplified hardship in Christian congregations that do not adhere to the words of 1 Timothy chapter 4. But also along with marriage, false teachers, as the passage says, often come up with dietary restrictions or even other pointless restrictions its followers must adhere to I, I, this was in jest i must admit but i recently had somebody who pointed out to me that they were going to lent was on the way and they're holier than me cuz they're going to not eat meat on fridays and i said it's undeniably you're deniable you're holier than i am that's why i'm a protestant i can't keep up with you And the irony was, well, first off, then the conversation became how he had a realization that his denomination allows him to eat eggs. And because he can eat eggs, he's decided on Fridays he then can also eat chickens, because if he can eat the egg, he can eat the chicken. But even then that, there is this silliness. And it's a good time for us to be in this passage, because we're up against Lent, to this idea that certain kinds of foods that God created for goodness for us to enjoy for us to appreciate can be wrong in themselves if you're someone who for instance usually gives up let's say meat on fridays can i maybe encourage you for a different practice this lent if it's not too expensive and it might be too expensive maybe have your favorite kind of meat on fridays every friday of this lent it's not that abstaining and fasting are bad But that so you might embrace what this passage asks for you to be overwhelmed with the spirit of thankfulness for what Christ has done for you. Remember, Jesus, even after the resurrection, he ate breakfast of fish and bread with his disciples. I mean, how could Christ do that? Didn't he know that that meal killed those sweet little fish of Galilee? The reason he could do that is because God created all kinds of things for us to enjoy in this world. And his cross was not to restrict those things which he had previously called good. And that's the key issue here, the key principle here, that he previously called good. And this is why it becomes a gospel issue. Liberty and freedoms to do things that God calls good is a gospel issue. Peter, early in his ministry, as he sometimes was prone to do, as we are prone to do as well, He got this wrong. The women are going to study this in Galatians. In Acts chapter 10, we can get to the heart of this debate. There's a food debate about Peter that Paul eventually has to call him out on. In Acts chapter 10. And the blessings of Christ's cross, Peter just failed to appreciate in that moment the enormity of the blessings of Christ's cross. And so even in the small things... As Paul is hinting at here, there are big implications for us, and if our teachers start getting the small things wrong, with overly legalistic minutia of calling good things bad and calling bad things good, we need to heed the warning song, the dunna 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 of First Timothy four. We need to remember to keep watch for the shark fin appearing above the water in our churches. Just think of this as a worldly society. Incrementally, those small things, one step after another, have come to a point and come to a head where now, it's just, I'm sure I'm not the only one who every week is stupefied by where we stand as we incrementally have gone farther and farther and farther astray from God's Word of calling Bad things good, and good things bad. And that's not just a problem of the world. That's a, that is also a problem of the decay that takes over churches. We need to be aware of how teachers and handle the small topics. And by the way, for you to be aware of that means you need to know the scriptures well enough... To hold me to account, to hold Bruce to account, to hold those who are teachers to account. To keep that kind of evil at bay. It's for both you and I to believe and know the truth. People come up to me on occasion. Oh, how do I know whether to believe you or this pastor or this group? And the fact is, Christian, that while in my pastoral role, I am to be dispensing and administering biblical truth for the good of yours and my soul by uplifting the name of Christ, you're going to need a more robust faith than what I can personally offer you. The Word of God clearly expects that you as the hearers should know the Word of God in such a way that if I decided right now to say no one should eat tomatoes and onions during Lent in order to honor Christ, you won't say, oh well, the pastor said it, so I must believe it. No, actually, you're supposed to be familiar enough with this book to say that's a warning of when the false teacher arises. And, and obviously, true falsehood will be far more subtle than that. But you need to be able to spot it, to rebuke it, to clearly ignore such teaching. And continuing on without any fear, right, Rob, of eating onions and tomatoes. Because they're good. They're good, Rob. They are. He hates onions and tomatoes. I had tacos with him this week, and it came with onions and tomatoes. He's scraping them all off. So, yeah, I'm putting them on my plate. And Christ has been found the climax of all love and good gifts. So don't look at the words of those who make up new standards of love, new standards of gifts that they call good. Rather, hold fast to what Christ shows us is good. The next danger, after avoiding calling good things bad and bad things good, is to avoid silly myths. We are people of good doctrine. We are to be a people of good doctrine, and good doctrine follows the pattern of God's word. The wise church is protecting itself from myths that would get at the core understandings of our faith and get our faith off track. Marco Rubio moment. A church always needs to be able to be willing to examine what it believes and why it believes it. There are plenty of Christian fables. And the apost- apostolic time was, it was a heyday for this. I mean, here we, have, we don't have the New Testament canon fully formed yet. It was very popular for people to make a living saying, Oh yes, I met Jesus, and I saw this special teaching. And let me give it to you. That's that's kind of what the Bible's talking about when it talks about super apostles. At times, that that people would create these myths and these falsehoods that other people were supposed to believe. And yet, this is not only a problem in our day. And I'm not going to pick on that same denomination again because they're too easy of a target with this one. It's far going to be far more subtle for us Protestants. It's coming in the form of woke theology, of genderless society, of foolish egalitarianism, for egalitarian sake. It's coming in this new formed idea of a new segregationalism. It's going to come in matters like that. Where the teachers are not teaching out of scripture, but they're teaching philosophies, myths, and fables. Not really adhering to the word. Not really understanding the the unity of, of, for instance, Paul in the the early chapters of Romans. They are going to uphold godlessness. Those are the fables. Those are the myths that will get us off track if we are not careful. This is why Paul will tell Timothy in the next letter, the book is sufficient for you. The book is sufficient. It has everything you need in order to conduct your life in a godly fashion. The Bible has more than enough true stories in it, and even some parables too. And in that is found a sufficient fullness of teaching. So we don't need falsehoods, and we don't need to incorporate falsehoods into what Jesus has made clear. next section I get really excited about as a portly pastor. Paul picks on those who will have their gym membership. You know, those fitness gurus. Stay with me. He doesn't totally pick pick on you, but hear me out. Paul here is speaking in an Olympian kind of language. The bodily training that Paul's speaking about here is there's a Greek word here, gymnasia, which we get the word gym from. A place... Dedicated to physical fitness where the Olympians would train and Paul's point here is while the workout warrior can go to the gym and gain some valuable improvement over this present life over such work the greatest workout is still training ourselves in godliness because in this life 100% of bodies will ultimately fail in the end Even the most uh, well-sculpted body on the earth. I'll take, this will sound odd coming from me, but let's go with Dwayne the Rock Johnson, right? Dwayne the Rock Johnson is made from dust, and from dust he shall return. The rock's going to become dust. The body's going to break down. And that only had, his physical fitness, only has a limited window in which he benefits from it. In comparison, Paul is saying, a Christian should be someone who has more passion than the greatest Olympian, the greatest workout warrior of the gym, to spiritually discipline themselves both to understanding God's word and and living as one called by God's word calls us to live in the world. We are to have an ever-growing single-mindedness as we begin to develop in Christ where all our thoughts, our beliefs, our doctrines are held captive to Christ and his cross. If Michael Phelps could do what he could do with a swimming pool over the matter of four Olympics, imagine what we could do if we uh, commit ourselves to the spiritual discipline of not only understanding the word but living by that same word. We could do far more than He could do. And the amazing thing, if you look at verse 8, it makes clear, this blessing is not just for your present life. But notice the second half of the promise in verse 8. I mean, I don't even... I don't even when I first looked at it, I, I, I just had to like kind of sit there with the Word. Because it's remarkable what it's suggesting. It's, it, Paul even anticipates... The disbelief, in verse 9, I would argue, of what he has just said, because it's incredible. But aligning yourself more directly to the Word of God and practicing that godliness not only blesses our current lives, but there is a sense in which, Christian, the more we prepare in this life to live for the life to come the more blessings that we will enjoy in eternity. There's a degree by which, in heaven, this passage is suggesting that heavenly, heaven will be a little more heavenly for those who took seriously the spiritual call for us to be conformed to the image of Christ. And Paul, again, as I said, he anticipates that the second half of this promise will be hard for us to believe. That he follows it up with, the thought-provoking and incredible promise of verse 9, which states the, that, that ultimately you can trust what he's saying. And then in verse 10, Paul says another verse that is hard to wrap our heads around. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on a living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Savior of all people, especially to those who believe, what is Paul getting at there? And really, to understand this verse, and there are people who have run um, wild with this verse, you need to know historical context. So, in roughly 48 BC, I believe, Julius Caesar pretty much helped bail out both Ephesus and surrounding cities. In Asia, from uh, financial woes, and so at that time, which was more than a hundred years before the writing of this letter, at that time the cities in thankfulness, especially Ephesus, erected this large statue of Caesar, an amazingly large statue of Caesar, and it stated this below it: the cities of Asia along with the citizen bodies and nations honor see julius caesar pontifex maximus emperor and twice consul the manifest god sprung from ares and aphrodite aphrodite and universal savior of human life they called in this statue in ephesus that caesar was a savior To the people. They saw the blessing of Caesar. Basically bailing them out financially. Of reinvesting in their cities. As something that so improved the quality of their life. That they all universally agreed. Our life is better for Caesar. Our life was better because Caesar lived. And what Paul is alluding to here is the fact that throughout the world. Life is better because Jesus has lived. The Bible speaks of the reality, this reality as called common grace, enjoyed by all. That God did not just bless us, his church, For example, why does the sun shine this morning? Does the sun shine only for Christians? No. The sun shines uh, in in its shining. It blesses both Christians and non-Christians alike. That's one aspect of God's common grace. But also, it goes a step deeper. We Christians are to love our enemies. Well, let's go back to the sun shining. God is showing that he still pours out many great loves upon his enemies through the common grace that the world enjoys. And then that same God tells us who were once his enemies, go out and love your enemies likewise. And so the world is blessed by the common grace that not only God extends into all of creation, but also he uses us to extend into creation. Life is better for such grace being extended to them and by us. And for this degree, he is a savior to them in this present age. But this present age does come to an end. And so there is a different kind, a second kind of salvation. And so this makes the great irony of our time. While the unbeliever is busy trying to root God out of everything, just think of the public schools of the last hundred years. That even for us, it seems so foreign and wrong to have a discussion about the biblical God in a public school. And yet, in the constant attacks on the freedom for the Christian witness within our society, the unbeliever has no idea how they are making war on the common grace of God. You want a, a part of the reality of the decay of society. Part of the reality comes from the fact that the unbeliever right now is so committed to hating the common grace principles. The principles of conscience that they suppress an unrighteousness. They, they, they do not want them. They do not want that light. And so they resist them. A great verse to understand the principle that Paul is talking about here is found in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, which states... Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The sun shining on Trudeau or Putin or whoever you want to put in this morning or whoever is the unbeliever this morning is meant to do what? To lead them to repentance. The kindness of God is meant to lead us, lead them to repentance. The kindness that we are to extend to the enemy is meant to lead them to repentance. All the common grace gifts that God extends to the unbeliever are meant to lead people to repentance. The way you help our community, you help our society, is not shunning or shying away from our Christian witness but by extending a hand of love and fellowship to others. I'm starting to talk about a possibility of a maybe a new building here at Old Goshenab and I don't know, I, don't, I really don't know if, it, if we're going to be able to afford to do such a thing if we'll be able to uh, if it's going to go forward at some point but I think of the opportunities that we have to, in possibly creating a building that could better teach, better educate, even serve as a school midweek, we have an opportunity to extend love into a community, to extend the light of Christ into our community. And the glorious thing about it is, even in the common grace reality of that love, there will be blessing. We're promised of that. But even for some, it will lead them to repentance. That's the right kind of investment. That's the kind of investment that echoes through eternity. And doesn't just... It's not just the workout warrior for this life. But it's the workout warrior for the life to come. And so, if 1 Timothy chapter 4 is to be believed, such endeavors of sacrifice for our community will even have the fruit of leading some to repentance. And then in the final verses of this chapter, we see a warning of danger if we live an undisciplined life. Now, this is seen through a very personal description Paul gives to this young pastor who is a son to him. But the application is clear. Our faith, our doctrine, our teaching, these lessons that Scripture gives us, these things are, are means of genuine salvation that we can offer to the world and bless the world thereby. But on the other hand, if we are not mindful if we do not keep watch over ourselves and how we conduct ourselves, dangers can quickly emerge that might cauterize our soul and burn into it the branding of a father we do not want. Burn into it ungodly patterns of life. And so let us be a people who keep a close watch over the things we believe, the things we teach, the, things that, the truths that we hold dear. And while these final verses make clear Timothy as a pastor needs to be voted to things like the public teaching and reading of scriptures, the exhortation of them, can a pastor really be dedicated to these things if also the hearers are not dedicated to these things? I'm going to get in trouble for this one. I'm going to say it. When I first got here, five or ten minute sermons were what people wanted to hear. I know I've gotten longer lately, but I'm sorry. We are to be a people dedicated to these things. And that dedication isn't just a long-winded pastor. The dedication is also to be found in the hearers. If you don't have a dedication for those things, who are you dedicated to? Who are you dedicated to? I remember when the tornado came. And I I got featured on Fox News Philadelphia or Fox Philadelphia or whatever. And somebody in the congregation at the time. They're no longer in the congregation. Call me up and say, can you please take down your biblical stand on marriage from the old Goshenop and webpage? Because I'm worried people are going to look up this church and they're going to read your profile and the type of marriage you stand for. And they're going to lash out at the church. And I just said to the person, I worship a God who says, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. I will not be ashamed of him. I will not be ashamed of him. And we need to be people dedicated to his word. Dedicated to hearing his word. And not forsake it. So that we can have a couple more minutes on the Lord's day. To do things that are only profitable for this life. And really don't have the investment that this passage is talking about. Of having the double blessing of both being profitable for this life and the life to come. How are we? And so let us be a people. We keep a close watch over the things we believe, the things we teach, and the truths we hold dear. Because while these final verses make clear, this is important. This is incredibly important. And how are to, we to believe that such a witness, such a faithful witness to the Word of God will be blessed, all we need to do is look to Christ. Remember, His life is the ultimate model of how salvation is found in his dying and his giving up certain things for our sake, us once enemies, his dying to sin and for our sins. We were made free to be found in his life-giving spirit. And so let us continue to allow sinners power to die within us. Let's let sins die through the power of the Holy Spirit and and extend deeper and deeper into our commitment to the living water, the life that He offers. We are connected to His story. We are connected to... uh, We are recipients of His inheritance and it's more than enough to cover the tax of our sins and all the sins that wickedness would require. And so we are free to give our inheritance away to others, this gift, because it will never run out. This well, and it's, I had this in here before your study, Andy. You, if you're missing morning study, you miss like, it, it almost always lines up with the sermon. God does that. This well is always filled with living water. There is no great white shark to be found underneath it all. So come, Christian. Come and drink without price and continue to seek to bring in others to these still waters where peace can be found and evil is kept at bay. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, let us better understand your grace. Continue to grow us in the sacred things of this Word, to grow us in our knowledge of Christ and His gift and His witness, His loving and perfect witness to a world in which He was not ashamed of Your Word, our Holy Father. And yet, also let us count the cost, the reality that He was still made to suffer, that the world did not embrace Him with open arms that had constantly reviled and rejected and ridiculed him. The myths of our day, Lord, the the fables, those who have forsaken the clear teachings of Scripture, while they are praised in the public courtyards, while they can go on the news stations with impunity, Lord, we don't do the work that we do for this life but we do the work we do for this life and for the life to come. Help us to be heavenly minded so that we can be earthly good. As he sings in Jesus' name, amen.